All right, let's get started. I, um, there is going to be no new reading this week, because we're going to read it again, hopefully, spend a little more time with it. I uh, realized that there was just a little too much in there to cover in one class. I th- you know, but, so we'll just, if, it, if anybody didn't pick one up, it's, it's, there's, there were some extras up there. If not, I, I'll print out some more. Um, they should have a big giant hand spreading seed down. That's from last week. So we're not going to have a new one for next week. We're going to – I would encourage everyone to reread it. Because we're going to – okay, so we're going to spend a little time more on meditating what this is. Because I've talked to a few people who said, you know, this is a kind of unusual reading. And that's true. I mean, Carol brought that up last week. It is unusual. It's supposed to be unusual. But in the end, I think it will be very fruitful. And in this reading, especially, uh, Greifenberg, when is Krista coming back? Okay, it is Greifenberg. That's what I always thought in the German pronunciation. Doesn't always work in the English, though. Uh, but, oh, there's a new discussion guide. That should be on your tables. There's, there's some extra right here. There's some extra, I'm sorry, but no new reading. Sorry for the, any confusion. Yeah, the new discussion guide, there's one extra one here. There might be some extra back there with Aaron and Holly. Yeah, the first week should have a, a woman with um, sponging out a canvas. She's uh, erasing everything besides Christ crucified. She just wants to meditate upon Christ crucified. And that's in chapel, that's why we keep singing hymn 422. On my heart, imprint your image. Well, there should have been... Uh, I will have to print out some more. Wow. Did someone lose theirs? I felt like I printed it out enough. Maybe I didn't. Uh, Kathy, I will print out a new one for you. From last week. Yeah, it's it's so right now we've done the first meditation and the twelfth meditation, and we're just gonna do the twelfth one again next week. So okay. Um, yeah, well mainly because in this the reading that I gave to you last week, within the last eight pages is um, probably four Bible studies worth of material. So I thought we would at least split it up. So this week, again, on page 131, uh, she kind of she thinks about being quiet. Uh, quiet generally comes with godliness, she writes. And in that meditation, she realizes that quiet, I mean, she expounds many things, but quiet doesn't mean simply lack of noise, being quiet doesn't mean simply not making any noise. That's what being quiet actually means an open ear and heart. So being quiet is actually a type of listening. I mean, I encounter this in confirmation every Sunday. Uh, and the opposite, where the kids who are the most quiet ask a question to them, and they're like, what? And then the kids who are talking all the time, they raise their hand and they answer the question. So... 
So they, uh, you know, listening takes on different forms, and just because you're not making any noise doesn't mean you're always listening. So she is really kind of spending some time on, on thinking about what it means to be quiet and how God re God's revealing himself in, in the meditation of the scripture. And, and so she needs to be quiet because she knows God is showing up to do something with her, to her. In fact, um, yeah. Now, the thing is, though, is that, um, you know, questions about, like, you know, what if I don't understand the Bible that well, or I don't know how to pray, you know, I don't really know how to do this. Um, Griffinberg just encourages you to make, to take your time. Take your time, both in doing the exercise of meditation, and then also taking your time, uh, you know, like having patience with it. Remember, in Luke chapter 8, we, last week we, take, we took a look at the parable of the sower, and Jesus specifically mentions in Luke chapter 8 on the parable of the sower that the fruit will be born with patience. So you need, we need to take our time with God's word and, so that his word implants itself in our hearts and then grows. We can't rush it. So what appears to be things not working or you not getting it is really just simply God taking his time with you. So when, and, and so in Greifenberg then writes this meditation in an awkward way, right? We talked about a few things last week where sometimes she's writing as if she's kind of just writing a, a little bit of commentary on the Bible passage. And then other times it's like turns into a poem, then turns into a prayer, then she switches pronouns where she's talking about the characters in the Bible passage and all of a sudden she's in the Bible. She uses the personal, first person, I. And it's, you're like, whoa, what's going on here? So the only way you really are able to, you know, glean or glean things from it is if you take your time with it. So we're going to spend a whole nother week with it. Okay. And then also, too, you got to take time with it because some of the things she says are just like, Weird. Okay. Okay. Uh, not gross. They're very natural, actually. Bodily functions. We're going to talk a little bit. Hopefully, we'll get to that today. I don't know. Uh, again, that's a whole, like, you know, I talked to Bruzek about this, and he's like, yeah, you know, I think you're trying to do too much. <laughs> so... I get that. So we'll just see what sticks. You know, it's like throwing things against the, you know, the old pasta test, right? We throw it against the wall and see what sticks and, you know, can always come back to it. All right. Now, okay, so then the other thing, too, though, for Greifenberg, as far as taking time with God's word, is just the importance of it. And she has this nice little thing on page 133. It's, it's in the discussion guide. Thus, it is ever strange that we must be forced to accept our good fortune. Everyone would joyfully hold out his hat if it rained pearls. Why not his heart and ears to the pearls of the divine word? So now she's, um, so first of all, she echoes Jesus's language, the, the parable of the great, a pearl of great price, Matthew 13. But she's also talking about they, uh, the, the, the characters in the Bible, the, um, Nicodemus and Joseph and even the Pharisees, they're all kind of driven by this, you got to remember the Sabbath, the third commandment. So 
They needed to get him off the cross, get Jesus off the cross, and then get him into the tomb before the Sabbath started. And that's where she talks about it's strange, it must be forced. So it's like this compote, like, hey, don't, you gotta, we got to do this because of the Sabbath. When she's, she's saying, whoa, we have something even, I mean, we have something, you know, even more valuable than pearls falling from God, from heaven. We should be open to this. So this also helps, you know, with our frame of mind and expectations as we meditate. Like we're spending time with something that's very valuable and, because it's valuable, we should expect things from it. So I think that is part of our struggle, because we do expect things from it. And when it appears that it's, we're not receiving anything, we get frustrated. But in fact, again, it's patience, and there will be a harvest that will come. Hence, parable of the sower. Okay. Now, the image, of course, which she chooses to help us, you know, picture meditating on God's word happens to be breastfeeding, which that's uh, feeding from the breast of Christ, page 133. I know it sounds strange, but maternal images of God and Christ have a biblical foundation and were used extensively in the Middle Ages. So biblical foundation. So in Lutheranism, the Bible was pictured with a breast, actually. And I didn't get the picture. Um, I, I, John Kleinig, several years ago, used, showed some of the images. But it's a, it's, a, it's a very common image in the Middle Ages and up through Lutheranism. So in the Middle Ages, um, it was often Mary. And she would be bare-breasted, and, and it would be, she was then, of course, an image of the church where God's word and sacraments are, and they're feeding the, the people. So, you know, people would be, you know, I think in our modern sensibilities, definitely, you know, we're kind of like, whoa. But that was, that was a very common image. But then in Lutheranism, to really accentuate the, the, the word of God, be more specific and concrete about it rather than kind of a you know a general picture of the church it was specifically the word of god the word of god actually had would have a breast on it which is kind of awkward i understand but the image is important now we have to spend a little time with that again right so but first so the maternal kind of image so deuteronomy 32:18 isaiah 42:14 isaiah 49 and then Matthew 23 and Luke 13, although that's not a mother, that's a hen. <laughs> it's a mother hen. Um, and, and Matthew and Luke, all these pictures, and there's more uh, that are, oftentimes the Hebrew words are kind of not literally translation, translated, but that these are kind of the most simple ones in terms of English. Because um, like even, even in certain instances where... Um, the word to birth is sometimes translated create in the English. But it's, it's, it's a birth word. Uh, so anyways, so, there's, but it, so we're not getting into like, well, Jesus was a guy, right? And then we have a maternal image. That's not, we, we kind of have to read through this. So what a sort of image does feeding at Jesus' breath conjure up? Breast conjure up. So 
in that instance, on page 133, if you happen to have your reading, I mean, I'll just read it, I guess. I, there were so many things I was just going to quote, but I thought, you know, I'm going to waste so much paper. I'll just make reference and then read it. Okay. Oh, so this is the battle between the world weaning her away from the church and how she does not want to be weaned from Christ. All right. Oh, how often will the world try to wean me? I cry, however, for thy breast, O Jesus. The law of thy mouth is dearer to me than gold, even fine gold. I say with that pious man, lead me, thy little child, into the wilderness, press me to thy loving breasts. Now, in the footnote, it says maybe it's from the Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Could, it could be. But I don't think that actually sheds any light on that passage, necessarily. So, but the whole point, though, is, so Greifenberg is the image of the child. So think about a child. What does a child need? And what does the child desire? And why does the child need this? And why should the child desire this? So now, because at first glance, you're kind of like, this is weird. I'm just going to disregard it and move on. But if we spend a little time with this, we see something happening. Holly. Well, it's not even so much like the, the milk or the food that the child needs, but it's the, the tender embrace, the care, and the comfort that Jesus brings to someone who is wayfaring or, or, you know, a child that wants to do wrong or... Yeah, so someone who's in trouble. Uh, you think of studies long ago, uh, it was Romania, anyway, orphanages. Yes, it was in Romania, right. The children. A tragic, yeah, that tragic, right. They were fed, they gave what they needed. Right. They didn't have to touch yep. or touch. Yep. It screwed them up. It did. Um, okay, good. You guys are women, though, so, you know, for us guys, we've got to think about this a little bit more, maybe. Okay. But I, I'm actually very serious on that. I mean, so, that's right. So not only is it food and sustenance and protection but it's the nurturing, the compassion, the caring that will make the child um, healthy, but also satisfied. And not satisfied in, like, my belly's full, but satisfied in the sense that I, I am completely safe and nothing in the world can hurt me. Like, that's, that's what satisfaction is. And it also develops a connection. Mm. That's, well, then that goes to the Jesus aspect. What is Jesus giving? And, and uh, he's giving nourishment and satisfaction. So the image of the Bible having the breast on there is the idea is his word. But okay, this is where we have to spend a little, like, in her mind, again, she's not thinking about breastfeeding as a scientific kind of phenomenon. The woman is giving herself to the child. So, hence... What Carol just says, there is a, an inherent connection between the child and the mother because the, mild, the mother is giving herself to the child. It goes both ways. It goes both ways. Uh, what do you mean by both ways? Uh, the connection develops between the mother and the child. Mm-hmm. The mother. 
Well, because what can the child not but do in that instance? Give him or herself, right? I mean, she, that's all they got. They can't give any benefit. I mean, you might say the child's cute and, you know, cuddly, and that might be a benefit of the child, but fundamentally the baby is giving he or herself to the mother, and then the mother is giving herself. So you're right. Erin. Well, I'm also thinking about, like, okay, like a, a five-minute-old baby. Right. It's like they're not smart. They are not accustomed to the world. They're not experienced. They're not, yep. Like, even their instinct to suck is just given to them. And so it's like, it's an interesting That's exactly right. How, how a newborn is, there's absolutely nothing in them that they've done with their own. It, even their ability to speak the mother is given. Yeah. It's what they're meant to do. This is how they're created to be. And so that is, I think where I said that already, right? Yeah. So Greifenberg encourages you to take your time because meditation comes naturally to a Christian since it is what you are meant to do. As the baby is meant to be with the mother, so are you to be meant with Christ. Um, I have a quote from a different, uh, not all of the meditations are in this book, hence that's why I'm not making it by the whole book, plus it's expensive. Um, but this, the, the, the woman from the, um, Lynn Tatlock? Yeah, Lynn Tatlock translated, I think I, I might have mentioned this, right? It's like the, all the meditations take up like 4,000 pages or something like that. So she only picks out a few. There's another book that uh, explores some of her other, uh, some other meditations. So I just quote from that. And it's a devotion on the Lord's Supper. Oh, who would not want out of sheer delight in this sweetness suckling of the Holy Eucharist to pass away in sleep with the breast still in one's mouth like infants do? Well, <laughs> but again, she's associating the Lord's Supper with Jesus Himself, and um, we'll maybe get to that too. The the you know the mouth is very important to Greifenberg's meditations, and and so she mentions that too. But the whole point, though, is I mean I think that's a great image, a child of sheer delight and complete contentness that falls asleep. Again, completely safe. I mean, how many of you stay up at night because you're filled with anxiety? Can't sleep. This is the antidote to all of it. Your mind is racing, right? This goes back to what we talked about. Everyone meditates. Doesn't matter. You just, it's a question of what you're meditating on. You're meditating upon your grocery list, your to-do list, your, your insecurities, or... You meditate upon Christ crucified and his gifts and his love. Um, now, you probably need to meditate on all those things at some time. But the question would be, what's primary? What's your primary meditation? Because that primary meditation then helps you understand all the rest of them. And that's why, you know, Kathy, when you asked about the, that, the thing you have is, that image that has the, the canvas in this woman who, it's a sponge in her hand, 
and she's sponging out all the rest of the stuff around Jesus. And she's just leaving the, the crucified Christ because she just wants to meditate upon Jesus. Not to the exclusion of everything, but so that the Christ crucified, his love, his presence, his compassion, will then interpret everything else around it. So, okay. All right, good. So maybe this is something. So I want you guys to spend a little time with that. And, you know, we could just, I mean, this is the thing. I thought we could try it out. Because um, Proverbs, for instance, Proverbs 26, 7, it's kind of a strange verse. It's in the Bible. So, you know, we got we to gotta pay attention to it. Um, now, I did write it out in your handout, but you, you're, welcome, you're welcome to turn to it in your Bibles, mainly because just to show that you, there's no real context to this verse. This, this section in Proverbs are like string of pearls. I mean, there's just these <laughs> little, uh, little verses, and it's not like, oh, if I understand what happens before that, I'll get it and afterwards. So, um, this section in Proverbs, it's um, short on words, long on experience. That's what I, I've, been, I've been taught about like, in thinking about this. So you cannot understand the proverb 26.7 without spending a little time on it. So Proverbs 26.7, like a lame man's legs which hang useless is a proverb in the mouth of fools. You're like, what? I mean, you can move quickly with that. You can be like, oh, okay, I got it, I got it. Yeah, it's okay. It's, you know, legs are useless, I guess. If he's lame and a fool doesn't have any wisdom in it, so the proverb wouldn't help out. Okay. But, so let's think about it. That's exactly right. So, and, and this is also, too, important for us, is that we think, I mean, we think of one thing only, when in fact, when we meditate, we see a robust uh, group of things. Hence, Greifenberg's meditations were, especially in this reading, I think the last 20-some pages is on one verse. Or I could be mixing that up with your next reading. I can't remember. But anyways, she's got... Okay. So, you know, you think about this, right? So you got to think about your experience a little bit. Um, lame man's legs, he still has them. He can't use them. Um, there could be something unexplained in your too. Like, you're not going to get it. That might be hard for us, too. Um... Yeah, so it's almost like a riddle. You got a little, you got a little time to think about it and ruminate on it. The bio, the, the 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 prayer that we always pray with our the older kids at Pastor Chats, the uh, third or the first through fifth graders, is inwardly digest. Remember, we're chewing on God's word like we're like a cow chews on its cud. You might swallow it quickly. It's got to come up. <laughs> Later, and chew on it a little bit, swallow it again, come up, you know, I mean, it's, okay. All right, so, you know, but we're not going to spend the next half an hour just thinking about it. So let's, yeah, Aaron, go ahead. No, 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 I, I, was, I was only going to hopefully go for about five minutes, so, yeah. Well, I was thinking about, so a lame man doesn't use his legs. Right. And, Exercise or try or exhausted or they just sit there. And I was thinking about like um, 
if, if you've ever talked to somebody like young that hasn't been into anything and they have no experience. Yep. And they'll say something to you like, um, you know, we went through something hard and, and had somebody say something. A kid say something. Jesus has conquered death. And it felt like. What does he know of anything? It felt terrible. Right. <laughs> Pardon the pun, it felt lame. Somebody used that truth. Yeah, right. Walked down there and tried it and right. Yeah, okay, so that's actually really good. I didn't think about that, Aaron. So, you know, there's certain things that are absolutely true, but yet said without any sort of personal experience with it, it falls flat. Because the um, slogan, almost said like a slogan, right? Jesus is victorious over death. Like a slogan is just sort of kind of flung around. However, someone who's experienced death and the actual faith in the resurrection has actually experienced these things might not just throw that phrase around so kind of casually, but then says something that actually uh, is just like Jesus is victorious over death, but actually applies it to the person who he or she is actually talking to in a way that actually um, is empathetic. So puts, puts the person in the other person's place and then tries to listen with their ears and say something so that they actually, you know, th- th- those ears need to hear. Yeah, that's great. All right, so, I mean, so, you know, legs are meant to do what? To walk on. They're meant to take you somewhere. Yeah. So what are Proverbs meant? So Proverbs may be meant to take you somewhere. Right? That's, I mean, that's something. Um, so in a, fe- in a sense, Proverbs are like legs for your mind. But a fool is... The fool and the cripple are connected. Um, now, some people might say, well, the cripple didn't mean to be crippled. And a fool, he just, he just needs to listen better to not be you know, so foolish. However, it's not so much about the morality or the moral nature of these two comparisons. It's just the fact that Cripple can't use legs, and a fool can't use a proverb properly because the fool thinks he already knows what he's talking about when he, in fact, doesn't. Yeah. Um, so, in, in a sense, the cripple actually has one up on the fool because the cripple knows he's crippled unless you've met a cripple who thinks he's not. Then you would say what to him? Hey, man, you're crippled. You can't, you can't actually do, can't actually do that. You know that, right? Um, so then that just heightens the foolishness of the fool. Carol, these are just my takes on it. You're thinking, if someone is crippled, 
can't use the legs that they have, which you will use as well. We may use something else or, or something to go somewhere, but they also, because they can't use what they have, mm -hmm. they don't know and uh, appreciate the gift. No, I understand. I, I think I know where you're going. Yeah. Same way a pool yep. that has yeah. a proverb in their mouth that they can savor. Right. Yep. Think about. Yeah. Yeah, this is very, yeah, this is very connected to uh, what Aaron just said. Um, a lame person can only get around by who? Uh, either crawling or with aid of someone, someone else. And, of course, the fool can only become wise by someone else. That's the only way they can get anywhere. So that's a whole other level to the proverb. Surely. Well, that's, yeah, that's another, that's another interesting take on it. That's exactly right. So the, the crippled is unable to, to do things himself, and the fool can't either. But the fool, yeah. She takes, in the Bible, in many places, takes the wisdom. The crippled seems to attach themselves to God more. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a whole other aspect, too, Shirley's bringing up. Yeah. Well, think about the Gospels, right? Who are the ones who are healed, right? The crippled. Um, yeah, that's great. Okay. Um, the, I said only five minutes, so we're up at five minutes. Okay, but the whole point, though, is to, so we did the exercise. Okay, we, that was two lines. How many words was there? One, two... Not very many. So that was... So think about when we're, you know, reading these passages in the Bible that are like whole stories. Goodness gracious. Now, now it's starting to make sense that Greifenberg might be able to write 20 pages on, you know, 10 words. Okay? Because she has spent time with it. And she has these expectations of God's word. She has a kind of a right frame of mind on, like, how to do it like a baby at the breast of his, of his or her mother. And so that's how she enters into these meditations. I mean, it's, that's like, wow. I know. Because, you know, pastors have problems of teaching God's Word strictly as an academic book. So i got to read it, just kind of get things out of it, and then be ready to do something with it. Greifenberg has none of that. She is just like, this is Jesus and me spending time together. But the Jesus I'm spending time with is the creator of the universe who can enlarge hearts and minds to receive the joy that he wants to give. That's, I mean, that's, and that was the, in the chapel, Psalm 119, starting at verse 25. You know, just that last verse from it. Um, also, too, in chapel, that's why I keep doing the Psalms. 119, verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I love that verse. Okay. By the way, yeah, you know, a little tangent here. A large heart. The enlarged heart. Of course, that, that's like a, like a medical condition now, right? We don't want one of those. Um, but, but the idea of the enlarged heart means more room for God's love in it. In fact, there was a guy at the time of the Reformation... 
He, he was Roman Catholic. I mean, he stayed in the Roman Catholic Church. Philip Anire. He uh, established sort of like the. He, he was living in Rome at the time, you know, in the in the worst part of the church, according to Luther. Um, and he actually saw a lot of the abuses happening, and he wanted to kind of revitalize piety in in the city of Rome. Um, anyways, so he. Um, uh, established kind of these houses where uh, priests were able to live in community and then like anybody off the street could come and live and they would, um, the priests would teach them, like to give them schooling and trades and it, it just started to bl- like blossom because you had these street families, homeless families who were now becoming like very well educated. So you had you know, other rich people would be like, well, I want to send my kid there too, <laughs> to these schools. Anyways, what's interesting about him is, is this guy, he never used, to, he never wore a winter coat. Like he never, in the wintertime, I know it's in Rome, but I mean, it still gets kind of cold there in the wintertime. He, he would walk around with like just a t-shirt on and, well, after he died, they found out that he literally had in a large, like a, like a heart, super big that it actually broke his ribs. It was so big. So the images of Philip Aniri is a man with a burning heart, like a literally burning heart. And of course, everyone interpreted that as, well, that was, he was so, so filled with the love of God that it had to be bigger. When he really had a medical condition and he died early. But I kind of like the first story better than the second one. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah. See, he, he just kept. He was, he was like he like sweated a lot. But I think it was like he was having these kind of always having these heart. Yeah, right. Okay. I mean, nobody. Really, I mean, that's like modern, you know, doctors looking back upon you know, the accounts of him. Okay. Who knows what it really was. All right, now, the, the thing is, is that uh, there's some things that Grafenberg does in her meditations, and one of them is she often will put herself into the story. Okay? And I don't know if you ever do that. I try to get, I try to get kids to do that, is, you know, which character are you in the story? Where's Jesus in the story, and where are you in the story? That's often, that's just a simple Bible study tool. But she really takes it out in spades. And we've already, this has already been kind of coming up in the previous reading, but it, it happens again too. And most explicitly, she actually says, oh, if I had been there instead of Joseph and Nicodemus. Meaning, taking the, this is on page 121 where they're taking the body off the cross. So she imagines herself always present in the place and at the same time. So she's an observer, but she's also a participant. And we see that in when she changes from talking about characters in the Bible passage, then all of a sudden resorting into the, the first, person, first person singular pronoun, I. Um, and now this passage is, is kind of, a, kind of a, one of those other strange passages about the physicality of her spirituality. But anyways, I, that's something, too, I guess I want you guys to think about is like how you're fitting yourself into the Bible passages as you meditate. Because when you do, um, 
there's a variety of things that can happen, but I mean, it, it's one of those things where you will, again, use your own experience, just like we did in the Proverbs 26-7, to then start helping you kind of, kind of picture what's going on, not just as like a factual rendering in your head of what happened, but also, too, like putting yourself in this moment and asking yourself, what is, what is God doing for me and to me in this moment. All right. I don't want to spend too much time with that, but I just this is something, too, that maybe as you meditate on the Bible passages or just in your faith in general, is you always want to, at times, you want to put yourself into the story. Holly. Uh, I'm powerful at her confidence that she would be such a faithful follower of Jesus because when I put myself into right, I feel like, would I really recognize that? Yeah. Yes, that's a good, great question. Um, she seems like she has, it's 2020 hindsight. So yes. For operating pre resurrection. Right. It's easy to say, yep. How do all these things? Because now you know. That's right. Now, I don't think she discounts that. Holly, thanks for bringing that up, because this is something, too, I think she's just, she is working with the 2020. She thinks, if I was there, knowing what I know now, this is what I would do. Um, And I think also, too, she, uh, not only just, like, in this Bible passage, but also, too, like, in reference to, like, some of the, uh, when she talks about, like, the nation of Israel, I think she's lamenting them. Like, that's too bad that they don't know what I know. Isn't it wonderful that I am after the resurrection? Now, again, we have to remember that these are, just kind of think about, put it in perspective. These were her personal meditations that she was compelled to write. So, she, yeah, so it's not like she doesn't disregard her sinfulness. It's just that she really has this great desire to know the love of God. Yeah. Also, too, her meditations, this is a big thing then, too, for some of us who grew up evangelicals. And I actually put this in this. Yeah. Her meditations are never apart from the word and sacrament and the liturgy. So, in fact, I think, yeah. So it's on, I think it's on your last page, the third page. Pages 126 and 127. The grave in the rock encompasses him who spanned all the heavens with a span. Oh, little side note. I, I wish I would start counting how many times she says the word oh. And I thought, I wonder, why, I wonder if she does that on purpose. Like at certain places, or is it just really kind of like random? All right. Oh, if it could only be said of me as well, they laid Jesus there. Where then? In my heart, in my soul and thoughts, in my mind and mood, in my conscience, spirit and memory, in my body, mouth and tongue, in my works, words and pen, in all my movements and powers, life and conduct. Oh, let them lay Jesus in there often and everywhere. They, the servants of Christ, the teachers, preachers, confessors, and those who tender communion. 
So who, who is she talking about? Who are those people? The pastors, that's right. So she is not doing this on her own. That's, that's really important. Indeed, the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit, through governance and illumination, that is through the church. Illumination is another word for baptism. Through their, uh, did I spell that right? Impetus? Impetus? I spell that right? It spells, it's spelled like impetus? Okay, right. I, I just copied it out of the book, so hopefully that was right. Uh, <laughs> through their impetus operation and inspiration, so that all people would feel and confess it from their being, words, and works. Let Jesus, too, rise from the dead. There. So again, this is baptismal language. What happens in baptism? You die and rise again with Jesus. So, let Jesus rise from the dead there. So that means in your heart. And let his praise be spread throughout the entire world from there. For this is certain. Once a person serves Jesus as his resting place, Jesus will thereafter also use that person to spread his glory. So, I, I didn't quote the whole thing there. Um, there's more. To, there's actually more to it. So this is a meditation that happens in the liturgy. This is a liturgical meditation. She's going from baptism to union, like from the Lord's Supper, and then to witness or mission. Oh yeah, right down. Word, sacrament, witness. Yeah. Um, oh, then on, you know, on page one twenty-two, she meditates on the altar cloths. I thought was so cool. And I do think the altar guild should read that. So if you're on the altar guild, you're probably going to get an email from me saying, this is why the altar guild, so a little tangent here, but the altar guild is just as important as like, you know, the altar servers. It's, it's really... It's a big deal. So, it's a great way to serve. Okay. Uh, is there a hand up over there? Yeah, Holly. Um, I, I never quite, I really liked what you did about the, your part being like womb and tomb. Yes. I, I don't, you know, you talk about Jesus being in your heart. Right. You know, but I, I don't think I've ever expounded upon that. I felt like this was a really great. Oh, man. He's laid there in your heart, and then, and then yes. his life went through, you know, his ass. Yes. Um, pages 123, 124, and I think, I mean, I just wrote uh, on my, oh, sorry. <laughs> Special Rural Women is in 129. Um, but then those supposed to be great quotes, because I... Yeah, those are not all about women. <laughs> that the very bottom of that third page, sorry. Um, the, um, uh, just the one on 122 is, because she, she brings up this whole, okay, great, never mind. Um, but there's a lot of great uh, quotes from 23, 24, and 25 based on what Holly said. Like understanding what happens to Jesus kind of temporally. He dies, he gets buried, 
but it can't just happen out in the past. It, happen, it actually has to happen in us. Because the only way we can have new life in Christ is if our old life dies and we rise again. So that is uh, what Jesus does in our heart. So we would lay Jesus in the tomb of our heart, that in the same way the tomb was a womb for the new creation, the second Adam, so too our hearts would birth Christ. It's great stuff. I mean, I, I just, I would... I would, uh, Easter time, I mean, Christmas and Easter time is a good time to read this. But, um, yeah, really great biblical imagery. I said read it in class. I have a written down written in class, but I'm not, I don't really have time. You should go read it yourself. Spend a little time with it. Super good. All right, but back to the whole point, though, is that, like, so, um, in church, when you receive the forgiveness of sins, our hearts and minds then now are leaving our sins behind and we're completely focused on Christ. So this is where these meditations are flowing out of a liturgical context. So what she's experienced in the liturgy now really affects her. It changes her desires. And of course, when we read this, we're like, well, doesn't she realize she's a sinner too? Okay, she, yeah, she does, okay. She, she does understand that. However, what are we dwelling upon? <laughs> Remember, what are we meditating upon? Are we meditating upon our sinfulness? I mean, this is something that Lutherans are guilty of. We really like our sins. I mean, meaning that we, we dwell upon them a lot. Um, we cannot forget our sin. I mean, insofar as, like, we just can't. I mean, even the sins that we've been forgiven of, we can't forgive. I mean, forget. We just, we just now see our sin from the past is not holding against us anymore. God doesn't hold it against us. And rather than seeing our past sins as only our sins, we see our past sins as the the wonderful opportunity where God forgave them. I think I might have said this before. The only way that the cross can be a sense of joy is if we don't, because our sins put our, Jesus on the cross. But when we look at the cross, we don't see our sins. We see what? Our salvation. And that's the same. So she's just taking this meditation upon the crucified Christ and just blowing it up completely. So that's why she, you know, I mean, she's got all these wonderful desires, and you say to yourself, boy, that would be awesome. But I can tell you, I, I was really mean to my kids the other day, and I, I just don't feel like that anymore. I'm ashamed of myself. Or whatever. Whatever has happened to me. I think that's why you should precisely <laughs> meditate upon what she's saying, because she can help you leave those sins behind. And face forward to Christ and the joy that's set before you. Um, yeah. Okay, in the last 10 minutes or five minutes, I'm trying not to go all the way to 1030. Kathy, do you have a question? No. You're just thinking? Is, uh, 
I, I call it the perceptual organs she uses. She loves to talk about her body. But not just her body, Jesus' body. The physical becomes the means for achieving spiritual intensity. That is not my words. That's um, Kathleen Foyle Benny's words. Hence, there, okay, so again, so there's so much emphasis on Jesus' body and her body. Now, why is that? It's because she loves God with all of her soul, mind, strength, and understanding. What does that mean for us to love God above all things? Does that mean just kind of mentally believing in a certain set of, like, faith statements? Or does it mean giving myself body, soul, and spirit all to Jesus? And, of course, that's, that's what she thinks. And then she describes that in great detail. Um, so the thing is, is that uh, Jesus also loves her with all his mind, body, soul, spirit, understanding. So when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, but he's just saying, love like me. And this is most clearly understood in the crucifixion. Jesus loves us with everything he has. But it's delivered in the Lord's Supper most concretely. The crucified Christ is delivered to me. And so that's why she can talk so passionately about sucking the wounds of Jesus. <laughs> sucking every thorn out of Jesus' head, or sweet Jesus' head, or whatever she says. And that all oh, that she could drink the blood of, from the, the side of Christ, the blood of Christ. Because she doesn't see that as like a biological kind of clinical procedure. She sees this as a loving God who gives everything to his creatures. Yeah. Holly, you had a question? Comment? Well, this, I feel like it's a strange mirror of like loving sacramentally. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. Christ loves us sacramentally, but now she's kind of trying to get around trying to love him with her body. That's right. Yep. It can't be the same because we can't ourselves. No. And th- that's really important to keep in, in our frame of mind is that, so this, I, I think I wrote this down. Yeah. The senses become agents for union with Christ, thus recreating the union of the physical and spiritual that Christ himself represents. So this is not, I mean, she, so her just kind of sucking the thorns out of Christ's head is not literal, Okay. Um, although I think she would probably have literally done it. But her senses, her tongue, her lips, are overwhelmed by faith. So she trusts God's word and faith more than her own mouth. And this is, a, I say this to every child when they receive First Communion. So I'll... I'll I'll explain a practice I do with First Communion with children. I've talked to some pastors. They don't like it too much, but I, I understand why they might not. But um, at the end of their, their teaching, they have a little examination. And part of it is we go to the sacristy, and I show them the ciboriums and the chalices, and But I give them a piece of bread, 
an unconsecrated host. And I say to them, what is it? Now they, they say bread. Okay, great. Excellent. I said, go ahead. You can hold it. And I said, go ahead and eat it. Now, the kids now know that this is happening because, I don't know, there's word on the street from either over siblings or whatever. But originally, they were kind of like very hesitant about eating it because they were like, you know, because it looks like a weird piece of bread. I mean, it's a circle with a cross on it. Come on. Um, But they do eat it. And then I say to them, guess what it tastes like when you have First Communion? And some kids will say, like, body. I'm like, yeah, no, it tastes the same as what you just ate there. But we trust our, we trust God's word more than our tongues. And because we do that, we know it's the body of Christ. And we are eating the body of Christ. What I said right there, Greifenberg takes in spades, blows it up. She trust God's word more than her mouth. And for her, that's a wonderful thing. So she can now approach the crucifixion, not with horror, but with great loving and tenderness and compassion. As Christ has been loving and tender and compassionate to her, she will do that for him and his body. So she has this overwhelming faith in God's word even though everything in her body might say something opposite. So that's why you get these weird, strange... uh, There's a really strange one on the the devotion on the Lord's Supper. I might even quote that next week just to kind of show you. Where she... I'll just show it to you next year, next week. Hopefully I'll remember if not, I'll run upstairs and go grab the book and read it to you. Because, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty, like, comfortable with this stuff, which, you know, might be, I don't know if that's good or bad. But um, even that, I was like, ooh, that's weird. That's, that's wow. Ooh, okay. I know what she's doing here. But, man, I, that's, that's tough for me to, tough for me to take. Sarah. Um, you know, I'd be asking about that. Oh, because they always want, they, they don't want kids to be confused. So they want their first experience to be the body of Christ, not like the bread. Now, again, I, but I always, I, I'm very comfortable with what we do because we stress the, the difference between the two, the distinction. And then we stress the fact that we trust God's word more than our mouth. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, well, of course, it takes the fear. and that, So I err on this other side, yeah. I err on the side that our Lord's Supper is it, just like your child's first time eating a spoonful of peas. Kind of a big deal, right? But then the next time, it's not so big. It's just kind of normal life, you know? That's what I want the Lord's Supper to be like. Meaning... Uh, you know, just like eating a spoonful of uh, peas that first time, it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's fantastic. The child's not choking, right? I mean, you're really happy that for solid foods. Um, you know, but you get about a month or so, you're kind of like, just hurry up and eat your peas already. You know, it's like you don't really care. You just want them to eat it and get done with it. But same thing, though, like 
So you want your child to, you know, it's kind of a big deal for his communion, but then after a couple months, it's just kind of normal. But just like your child not having a spoonful of peas makes your child malnourished. So, of course, keeping the Lord's Supper, I mean, not having the Lord's Supper with your child who's been eating it will be malnourished. So even though it's kind of normal, it's also, you can't live without it. So it's it's both both hands. So that's what I want to do when our little catechesis. I want them to be like not freaked out by it, but I also want them to say, "Well, I can't live without it." <laughs> so that's why. Yeah, Kathy. I was been thinking about how uh, d- divorced we are in Western culture, well, in modern culture, I guess, from anything physical. Yes. We are. We go to the store to get our food. We're not butchering the food. We're not right. doing anything much to the food. No. I was reading that whole section on yeah. the flax, and I thought, I, oh, yeah. that is out of, I'm not making this. And uh, we just have kind of the only thing that's left with right. bodies is all been only sexualized. It's only yeah. it's good form. That's it. And so when we're reading, it's really like, yeah, you're like, whoa. Sexual. You know, it's it's. Yeah, right. It's not nurturing. We're gonna talk about that next week, by the way, Kathy. Pain. There's no sure. way not to feel. Right. Right. Experience death. It's it's all sanitized <clears throat> except for the sexual part. Um. Yeah. So we've lost a sense of divine in experiences. Right. Like God doesn't belong in these parts of our, yeah, God doesn't belong in these parts of our lives. We want to keep, I mean, whether we're conscious or not, we've kind of pushed them out, including sex. Um, yeah, no, this is, again, why, I, I, again, I kind of might have said it last week, kind of just, I didn't spend too much time with it. I, I think that's why it, it actually, it, it probably, especially in, in Western Christianity, I'm not sure about Eastern Orthodoxy or anything like that, but in Western Christianity, um, women lead the way in meditating upon the body. Teresa of Avalon, I mean, within Lutheranism, her, Greffenberg, um, a lot of the middle, middle-aged women, even around in Germany, but then you also have Bernard of Clairvaux and even St. Ambrose. But however, though, even their meditations are highly affected by, or um, they are highly affected by women's meditations on the body. And I think that's because, again, God made, you, made women this way. I mean, you are much more in tune with your bodies than a man is. You have to be. Because why do you have to be in tune with your body? Well, especially once a month, right? You're thinking about your body all the time when menstruation happens. I mean, this is very fascinating for me. I mean, uh, well, yeah, it's fascinating. Menstruation is interesting. But I mean, how the meditations of Christians on the body are affected by even a menstruation cycle. But again, too, though, again, that's affected then to pregnancy, right? And then caring for their child post-pregnancy. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's. I'm just enraptured by how your body physically changes you. I mean, emotionally changes you emotionally, like post pregnancy. It's almost like you can't even control it, right? Man, that's extraordinary. I don't have that problem. But we do our best. <laughs> and technology. Well, okay, but so this is the thing, though. This is where it's a struggle, right? Our bodies are a struggle, and it's 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 um, again, it's it's part of original sin, the effects of original sin. But if you are able to see that, then through God's forgiveness and, and uh, intention, all the struggle turns into be this wonderful beauty. It's redeemed. And that's why I think Adam says to Eve, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's enraptured by her. Not in a romantic way, but like in a real way. Like, holy smokes. God, good job, buddy. It's amazing. So then for Greifenberg then to meditate upon that is not, it's not weird. It's really, it's kind of natural for her because she's starting to see just a little bit, will God, the fullness of God's forgiveness. So, anywho, yeah. Grow up Lutheran, so. Neither did I. Learning the Lutheran Church, I kind of had to like just mentally say, well, that's the way they do it here, in terms of the sacrament. Yeah, right. Like, okay, that's the song, like going along with it. Okay. Yeah. Assenting to it. Right. So without any, You're surrendering, yep. Yeah, assenting to it. And But then when I, I was trying to uh, memorize, I was trying to memorize some scripture, and uh, which I realized later I was meditating on it while I'm trying to memorize Learning it by heart. Pulling it over. That's right. Again, like, oh, I said it wrong. Okay, and oh, I got it out of order. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was memorizing the chapter 6 of John. Sure. That, over and over again saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and then all of a sudden I'm like, what? That's, that's what they're talking about. It was like, you feel so dumb. But it's, it's like, then it was like, right. the light came up, the light bulb comes on, and I, when I see how much it took for me to grasp that, I realize how hard it is for mm-hmm. yeah. the American church in its non-sacramental right. influence to to grasp that. Yeah. You have to roll it over in your head like a zillion times. Yep. And all of a sudden it makes Yeah, you have to you have to spend some time with it. That's right. Um Yep. You're right, you are meditating. Yeah, the Bible, again, this is, I mean, this is the struggle. I mean, to put it even more simply, I don't know if I really said this much, but this, you know, us doing this is really, we're trying to connect the head and the heart. So, trying to connect your brain with your body. So, okay, we're running out of time. We're over time now. But go ahead and, and read that um, quote there, just as far as the body is concerned. And then I just, I have to, I, I love this. 
how would I have sunk my heart, soul, mind, and being in the sacrosanct five wounds and pressed them to my heart? Man. <laughs> I, I, really, I love I love it. Isn't that, that's a great, holy smokes. Because we always, I always, well, never mind. Let's pray. We didn't even get to faith in good works. I mean, she's a good Lutheran. Her meditations on the marriage between faith and good works. Oh, man, that's good. Because she treats it like a marriage. She quotes the Matthew 19. All right, well, maybe we'll get to that some other year. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. By the way, I, uh, I'm going to put the discussion guides online mainly because um, I, I can't put the readings online. That's a copyright issue. So uh, in case if anybody, you know, you invite a friend or something and they want to kind of review it, they can.